My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. I haven't been to a concert since the pandemic began. Now listen, I'm in my 40s and I'm a dad. It's not like I was hitting them up more than a couple times a year, even without a virus. But now that live music has returned, I miss it. Just not enough yet to drag myself out to see it. Why is that? First of all, it's expensive, and money is tight for almost everyone these days. Second, it's crowded in there, or at least it should be, and I'm still pretty leery of big indoor crowds. And finally, even if I do bring myself to buy a ticket and get excited, that doesn't mean I'm actually going to see the show. A quick scan of any music publication reveals that bands are canceling tours left and right. In some cases, that's because an ill-timed bout of COVID can totally derail plans that have artists moving between cities every day. But in other cases, they cancel their tours because they can't afford not to. When live music returned after the early waves of the pandemic, artists were overjoyed to be playing in front of fans again, at least at first. But touring right now can be a logistical nightmare. And unless you're a superstar selling out stadiums, it can also be a money-losing proposition, especially here in Canada, and especially for acts that rely on live shows to find new fans. So what does it look like to be on the road right now? And what happens to Canadian music if the mid-tier artists or the next big things can't afford to play? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Kyle Mullen is a freelance journalist who covers many issues for many publications, but he wrote about this one for Exclaim. Hi, Kyle. Hi there. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, thank you for joining us. And I'm fascinated by the actual economics behind bands traveling this country. So maybe before we get into, you know, everything that's changed over the past two years, everything that might change again as bands try to ramp up post-COVID, can you just explain the basic economics of touring to us? How does a band on the road make money and what are their expenses? It seems like it varies from uh, the size of the act, but uh, merch is a big factor in terms of especially making profits um, because expenses can be quite uh, high. And then it also varies um, between solo acts or uh, bands uh, who divide uh, the revenue that comes in more evenly. Um, Aside from merch, there's things like uh, guarantees where a uh, venue or a festival will pay a set amount that the act can 
uh, rely on as an incentive and as reassurance. Um, often that can be low, but at least they'll uh, know that they can get that when they're coming. And that's especially important in a big country like Canada, um, which came up a lot in my story where there's big distances between destinations in terms of uh, where bands play and that that can definitely eat into uh, revenue as well. Um, so there's uh, a few things like that, but it can be uh, a challenge under normal circumstances. And then with uh, record high inflation and with uh, shows being canceled because of COVID, the, that that all um, fell apart for a number of acts, especially smaller ones. And we're going to get into all of that, particularly the challenges uh, and the geography. But first, leaving the U2s and Taylor Swifts out of it, for the average band, particularly Canadian ones, how much of the process of putting on a tour is handled by, you know, a record label? Or is is this typically something that's their own venture that they put up the money for that they have to organize? Like, I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of, of where that responsibility lies. Yeah, that's something that I didn't get into too deeply in my article. Um, but from what I see, that can vary from acts as well. But uh, a lot of the bands that I spoke to or solo artists that I spoke to are on uh, smaller labels or they're independent. And a lot of it, they uh, coordinate with uh, a promoter and, and things like that. And it can be a pretty big uh, financial gamble because they're they're not on a major that can give them a financial cushion. So here's where we get to post-COVID. I know, obviously, this pandemic is not over. COVID is still impacting musicians and shows and people across the country right now. But since venues have reopened and concerts have become possible again, can you kind of give us a a rundown of how touring is going for Canadian acts? I've heard um, of tours being canceled. You alluded to this as well. Who has pulled their tours and, and why do they say they're doing it? Well, the acts that I spoke to, they pulled their tours uh, earlier on in the pandemic or maybe earlier this year when things were worse. And uh, just taking a glance at the headlines today, I didn't see that many uh, Canadian acts uh, that are currently pulling shows. But there are a number in the States, big acts or acts with big followings like Animal Collective uh, saying that it's not feasible to tour in Europe. Uh, Craig Finn of The Hold Steady and uh, other outfits like that. Um, but in terms of uh, Canadian acts, it's interesting. I spoke to the head of a major organization uh, who was telling me that she went to a, a Sum 41 concert this summer and it felt like things were getting back to normal again. And she was quite excited. Uh, and that was a, the CEO of the Canadian Live Music Association. So uh, she was optimistic, but said that it would take time for the recovery to take place. And I think that a number of acts in Canada are excited to get back on the road and to either gradually get back out there or uh, do what they can to play and make as much money as possible while things are improving. Um, but it's interesting that uh, one hip-hop artist of note, Caden's Weapon, uh, took to social media recently and said that things are so disrupted and in, in such a state of flux that he's concerned that um, maybe small to mid-sized shows are, will be in jeopardy maybe for the foreseeable future. And he implored fans to go see acts now while they can because it might not be a sure thing. When you mentioned some of the Canadian acts you talked to earlier this year, who pulled their tours? And and just give us some examples of, of what they said about why they did it. Well, we had Royal Canoe and their indie uh, rock act from uh, Winnipeg. And they told me about just repeatedly getting COVID. Uh, different members, one member would fall ill and then another um, would do the same 
after one seemed to recover and they told me that it was almost kind of bleakly laughable how they the fits and starts of that situation really derailed their entire album cycle and it was very frustrating for them throughout the uh, throughout the year. I had other acts that I spoke to who told me that uh, it was quite challenging to play conventional venues and that they had to find workarounds. A folk art artist called Michael Bernard Fitzgerald who told me about playing farms and um, different rural settings like that because he was struggling to cobble together something that was more conventional. And then um, I think that those were some of the the big ones there. And then I, I approached some other um, artists uh, such as Stars, who uh, tweeted about uh, losing up to $20,000 on, on a recent tour and uh, citing things like uh, car rental, gas prices, uh, hotels and things like that. But then they didn't want to comment on the record for my story after making that that statement on social media. But uh, they're considered, you know, top tier uh, indie rock act in Canada, and if they're struggling, uh, it's it's harder for the up and comers or the the smaller acts as well. You mentioned this briefly earlier, but maybe you can explain it a bit more. You know, Canada's always been a big country to tour, but how have the past couple of years impacted the costs of putting together a tour that covers, you know, maybe not the whole country, but but that covers a fair slice of it? And one thing that we might not uh, occur to us as fans or that we might not appreciate is things like uh, transportation costs, gas, uh, car rentals and things like that. And with the uh, current energy crisis that's going on and with inflation, that can make a tour of the West Coast or the East Coast or just various cities throughout our very big country uh, quite less feasible than before. There's also been challenges with Air Canada that have been pretty notorious lately from cancelled flights to baggage issues. And uh, that's been uh, another big hurdle. So just trying to get from place to place can be both logistically challenging and then just extremely costly to the point where some acts have to cancel shows or just throw up their hands and, and say that it's not feasible at the moment. When you talk to these artists, especially the ones who have had to cancel shows or pull tours, how do they describe making that decision? You know, they they probably couldn't play live for at least a year and a half, and they finally have a chance to get back in front of fans, and and they end up having to pull it because of economics or illness. Like, how, how does that, what does that do to a band or an act? Yeah, for Royal Canoe, they were telling me that it was really hard, not only financially, but also on their mental health, on their creativity, and that it was, you know, a real, a real downer for them. And that it seemed quite bleak. And the reason that a lot of these bands get into this racket in the first place is not to record music. They're not looking to become, you know, arena rockers or anything like that. They want to, you know, play shows where they can be, you know, intimate with fans or they can connect with fans, kind of really gritty, divey spots, you know, or things like that, or mid-sized to small venues where they're nose to nose with the people that love them and to not be able to uh, experience that is the key, uh, is to miss out on the key benefit of, of what they love. And it's an added strain on top of the stress of not being able to make the money that they hope to make that also just missing out on that connection can be a huge, take a huge toll on their mental health. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. 
It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. What options do they have to make uh, playing live more viable? You know, I imagine it's a pretty fine line to walk uh, in terms of raising prices or changing venues or just charging more and more for merch. Like, what are the upsides and downsides of just boosting the costs and passing them on to fans? Yeah, some of them that I spoke to, they worried about the ethics uh, of that. And then some of them just worried about uh, turning fans off and uh, not being able to draw the crowds that they'd hoped or to just not be able, you know, on a more, I think more important and deeper level to not be able to connect with fans or have people come that they uh, want to see them play because of the the economics. So there's concerns about that. Um, some have concerns that their fan bases aren't uh, that deep pocketed and that uh, trying to raise prices too much could backfire or just lead to smaller crowds and some worry that the same would go for merch prices. So uh, a tipping point there um, is something that's, you know, quite stressful and that if if prices were to go up too high, that that, that could just make things arguably even worse or at least not uh, be the, the silver bullet that people hope for. Are there groups that have organized to advocate for live music or Canadian musicians in general? What do they say about this problem? Is anybody pushing a different solution out there? Well, I mean, the the federal government of Canada, they uh, made a splash with uh, the Unison Fund um, earlier this year where they pledged to uh, hand out $2,500 sums to various acts for a total from a total amount of $16 million, closer to 17 actually, with quite a bit of money when you think about the grand sum. But in terms of the, the pieces that get handed out and how that works, some bands are wondering how that'll, uh, how much that'll amount to for the acts that receive it or even who will get it. But that's a big one that made a splash this year. But there's been several ongoing organizations like Factor who, uh, you know, deal in grants and things like that. Uh, it's, it's something that's complex and unfolding still. One of the reasons I was really interested in your piece and in this topic in general is that a couple of years ago, uh, before the pandemic, we covered why live music was increasingly becoming the most important way lower and middle tier acts made money because streaming pays so little and it's, you know, unless you're you're driving billions of streams, it's impossible to make a living doing that. So they were increasingly touring more and, and making their income that way. What happens if if bands at that level no longer see live music as a way to make up for the money they're not making through streaming? I think that that's the thing that everyone's really worried about because the potential domino effect there would be quite devastating. Um, bands just not being able or musicians of, of all kinds of genres not being able to uh, continue at the level that they're at or to continue professionally um, or even to have it be nothing more than a hobby. Uh, a number of venues shutting down. And then just a, a shrinking shrinking of the um, amount of music that gets out there, and that um, that fans hear and stream, you know, digitally and things like that. The the repercussions could be really devastating. Um, on the flip side, 
Um, everyone I spoke to for my article, they'd been back on the road. And although they'd had some pretty challenging experiences, all those downs were offset by being able to connect with fans and to get out there and do what these musicians wanted to do in the first place, which was to to play and to perform for you know like-minded fan bases and to connect with them and to be inspired by that. What happens over the next, I don't know, four or five months here? We're heading into the winter. COVID is not going away. It's apparently on the rise again, and there are a few precautions here. And everyone's broke, and inflation is real, and it's not pleasant to drive across uh, a country like Canada in the depths of November and December. You know, how does live music in this country ever come back to what it once was, and what happens if it doesn't? Yeah, it's it's really something that feels like up in the air more so than um, ever before. There have been recessions in the past, obviously, not that long ago, but this seems to have hit a lot so much harder, both because of the pandemic and because of the severity of the uh, on the side of energy uh, costs and things like that. So it's it makes things quite unpredictable. And you 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 mentioned four months, which is quite insightful because I think that that a short amount of time like that is going to see a lot of uh, developments take place, and we'll see uh, what comes next. But right now, uh, it's pretty hard to predict. Kyle, thank you for all this. Really appreciate it. And I will say one final thing at the risk of being editorial is if you love music, go pay for it. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to be on. Kyle Mullen, writing in Exclaim. That was the big story. As you may have noticed, it's an entertainment episode. On a Friday, one of the responses we got from a ton of you folks in our listener survey is that you really like it when we try to do something fun or try to give you some good news at the end of the week. So we're going to double down on that. I can't promise you it's always going to be good news. This is not exactly a good news episode, but it will hopefully be about more leisurely topics. Entertainment, yes, sometimes sports, technology, the internet, and yeah, wherever we can find them. Happy things to end your week. You can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can talk to us via email, hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. You can call us, leave us a voicemail. We are planning to play some of those, so keep calling 416-935-5935. And of course, Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk on Monday. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.